Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is episode number nine. In keeping with the recent podcast with Dr. Kirstie Agard discussing maternal microbiome, breast milk, human milk oligosaccharides, and the like, we're going to now move a little bit farther down the pathway and discuss microbiome of baby and specifically looking at probiotics with Dr. Tracy Shafazada. Dr. Shafazada is a nutritional scientist, speaker, and author with over 15 years of experience in scientific communications and life science research. Prior to serving as the Director of Scientific Communications at Evolve Biosystems, the current company we're going to be talking about, she led both product development and research services at various startup life sciences companies, including Lipomics Technologies, Tethys Bioscience, and Metabolome Corporation. Dr. Shafazada received her PhD in nutritional biology from the University of California, Davis, where she was studying intestinal development as well as folate metabolism in newborns. She comes to us today primed with a vast knowledge base regarding how mom's microbiome then affects potentially baby's microbiome. And in this case, her company specifically is looking at what microbes might be missing, how are they affecting the consumption of human milk oligosaccharides for mom, does that have any effect on baby, and are they studying this? So interestingly enough, for years, many companies have put out probiotics that are said to be doing X, Y, and Z, but the research hasn't been very rigorous. I looked at this company years ago at the request of Dr. Mazes and spoke with Dr. Shafazada about their work and was intrigued but not convinced because the science was good but not to the level that I was ready to pull the trigger on use and also further research study. Fast forward, we now have a company that is doing the due diligence, doing the scientific research and the heavy lifting to give us high quality, almost pharmaceutical grade studies to help us understand how these bacteria work. Are they efficacious and will we get a positive outcome in babies? And then thus, can we see positive outcome over time? These are some fascinating times right now uh, that we live in because we are entering a new era where not only are we looking at drugs, but we're actually looking at natural bacteria, natural products, natural everything to try and come up with a better paradigm for human health. And this conversation will leave you, I think, in a position of understanding where we're going, where the future is going to be, and how intrigued and excited I am by these companies, and in particular today, Evolve Biosystems and their probiotic. But before we dive into this conversation, I just want to make something very clear. I have no financial obligation or interest in this company. I have no investment. I am not taking any money. So therefore, you can understand that my opinion is unbiased and is purely based on the research and my belief that this is a product that is going to be beneficial for humans. Therefore, with no further time wasted, I really hope that you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Tracy Shafazada and her product at Evolve Biosystems. The product is called Evivo. Well, good morning, Tracy Shafazada from across the other side of the country. Welcome to 
Women and Children First podcast. I am so excited to have you here. It's been quite a while since we first talked and again, recently talked. So I am thankful to have you and we're gonna discuss a lot about what your research has been involving in and also what you're doing. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So as with a lot of my podcasts, I like talking about a little bit of an introduction. So I went back and looked at a bunch of the research and found one paper that I really liked. Um, it was published in Cell by Dr. Henrik et al. And I wanna read a little bit of it just to get us started, sort of a, a kickoff for you to take, take, the, take the reins. So basically what it says, mounting evidence indicates that the composition of the infant gut microbiome is critical to immunological development, particularly during the first three months of life. When aberrations in gut microbial composition are most influential, in impacting the developing immune system. Indeed, multiple studies have emphasized how early gut microbiome dysbiosis, described as an overabundance of proteobacteria and loss of ecosystem function associated with both acute and chronic immune dysregulation, leading to common conditions such as colic, atopic wheeze, and allergy, and less common but serious immune-mediated disorders such as type 1 diabetes and Crohn's disease. Okay. That's an end of the quote. So we know that breastfed babies have reduced inflammatory cytokines in their bloodstream by other studies, which is associated with reduced diseases such as necrotizing enterocolitis and preemies, allergic type disorders in infants and children, okay? So with that backdrop, knowing all of this, Tracy, define for us, the audience, what a human milk oligosaccharide is, the HMO, what an infant microbiome is, and finally, why did you go down this path? Like what led you and your crew to take this, this, this insanely beautiful path? Those are great questions. Um, and each of them is totally loaded and I'm excited to talk about each of them. So, okay. When we think about the gut microbiome, I think most of us listening right now have, have an idea that it's a collection of microorganisms that live in our intestinal tract. That, that I think is pretty fairly well known at this point. What's amazing, and over the last, I'd say, five years, is just how important that collection of microorganisms actually is. And we now think about it as a, a, a microbial organ. We actually think about it as an organ in our body providing critical function um, for uh, metabolism and immune system um, uh, function. And what's amazing about that is that when a baby is born, they are essentially born into this world with a sterile gut. They don't have bacteria in their intestine. They start collecting the bacteria that will become their gut microbiome as they travel through the birth canal or as they're born by C-section. That is this amazingly critical, important moment in a baby's life that determines the trajectory of their entire uh, lifelong health or disease progression. The, um, and I really do think that that's the uh, discovery and um, understanding that is that is progressed over the last uh, few years, five years or so. When you ask what a an HMO is, that is the second piece of the puzzle. So babies start collecting their uh, different types of microorganisms the day they're born and whatever food the baby is receiving and also whatever food those microbes are receiving is going to determine what the composition of their microbiome looks like going forward. Human milk is probably one of the most 
biologically magical uh, fluids I've ever studied. It has everything the baby needs for growth and development. It is the perfect food for babies because it's been, if you think about it, it's been under evolutionary pressure for as long as humans have existed to, if, if it's in milk, it's beneficial for the baby. If it's not beneficial for the baby, it will eventually not be in human milk over millennia of evolution. So if we look at milk and there's lipid and protein and, and uh, water and macro and micronutrients and carbohydrates, there's about 15% of the nutrients in human milk that are called human milk oligosaccharides. And these are complex carbohydrates that it turns out are completely indigestible by the baby which doesn't make any sense the first time you hear that. Why would human milk have 15% of the nutrients uh, in its composition be completely indigestible by the baby? And that's where the team at UC Davis really made the groundbreaking discovery that that 15% of milk, the, the uh, human milk oligosaccharides, HMOs, are actually food for the bacteria in baby's gut. And only one type of bacteria has been found to be able to completely digest those uh, complex carbohydrates, those HMOs, and that is Bifidobacterium longum, subspecies Infantis, B. Infantis. That's what we'll say for the rest of this talk, B. Infantis. So HMOs feed the B. Infantis, the rest of milk feeds the baby, and depending on whether baby is born by C-section or vaginally is going to determine whether B. Infantis is even present in baby's gut to receive those HMOs from breast milk. So I'll right. pause there and see if you have any questions before I keep going. Yeah, so I'm gonna define a couple of things. Mm -hmm. uh, that's exactly what I wanted you to, what I wanted you to say is exactly the, that, that framework of how this came to be. So oligosaccharide, I, I, you know, that for the, for the audience, that's basically saccharide meaning sugar, oligo meaning three to six, what we call monosaccharides, glucose, galactose, fructose, something in that, in that category. And so these are these tiny little molecules that are linked together that are used for energy. And as you stated very clearly, they're used for energy only by the bacteria. And that's such a such an evolutionarily beautiful thing, like you said. I think that is the crystal, to me, the most crystal, crystal clear part of why breast milk, again, is so important, right? Now, I, I understand we're going to get into this a little bit, but they're putting this now into formula, which is beautiful. But, you know, humans have built this thing through evolution. We have decided that these three to six uh, carbon um, sugar chains are linked together for feeding a symbiotic organism that exists within us in this organ that you call, you know, the, the gut microbiome of the infant. Now we have sitting in there, all these beautiful creatures are now consuming this. So what does that do, right? So mm -hmm. let me spin you into that part of it. So all of a sudden these bacteria, B. infantis specifically in this case, but there's many, many, many other bacteria that grow in the system over time. But in the beginning, we have these few guys, bifidobacter guys specifically, they're eating it. What are they doing with it? Yeah, that's a good, that, that's, that's perfect, perfect segue. So if you think about how we as humans, we eat food, we digest food, we utilize the things that are useful for our body and we excrete things that we don't need. We poop out the waste. Well, bacteria do exactly the same thing. Bacteria are in our body. They're consuming the food that's coming into uh, their environment in the large intestine. They're utilizing the things that they can use and they're excreting the things that they can't use. B. infantis, when it is in the presence of human milk oligosaccharides, uh, it utilizes uh, those HMOs for fuel. 
It digests them intracellularly inside the bacterial cell. And what it's excreting is lactate and acetate predominantly. These are short chain fatty acids that interestingly, B. infantis doesn't need, but what's amazing is that these are small molecules. These are um, short chain fatty acids that the baby actually can use. So this amazing symbiosis between breast milk having everything baby needs, everything B. infantis needs or the bacteria in baby's gut needs, and then B. infantis converts those HMOs from something the baby can't use into something really important. So lactate and acetate, these are acidic by nature, they're short chain fatty acids. And what's amazing about them is they are used for many different purposes. They are used as signaling molecules. They are used as energy for the developing colonocytes as the intestine is developing. They are, because they're acidic, they change the pH of the colonic environment. And what happens when you make the colonic environment in, in, in a baby or in any human uh, more acidic it reduces the ability of pathogenic bacteria to thrive. So it's a protective mechanism, which creates an inhospitable environment for pathogenic bacteria like E. coli, like Clostridia, like Staph, Strep. And it makes a more um, favorable environment for the protective bacteria like B. infantis to thrive. So it's almost like, um, uh, I've heard it said before, it's almost like a, the, the humans have recruited this babysitter to help create a protective environment in the infant gut so that during this period of growth and development and immune programming, we have a more protective, calm, favorable environment and we're reducing the growth of the pathogens that cause a more inflammatory and more destructive environment in the infant gut. Yeah, exactly. So let's, let's, let's take it a step back a little bit. So you have a thousand years ago, Mom is uh, eating a what we would consider today a Mediterranean or anti-inflammatory diet, depending on where they lived. They're consuming large amounts of fiber, which is the major fuel source for the uh, adult microbiome. Mom is now walking around doing whatever she's doing, existing, and then she gets pregnant. During this pregnancy period, and I'm going to talk to Kirsty Agard pretty soon about what actually happens in the maternal microbiome. But during this process, the maternal microbiome is developing. And then, as you stated very clearly, historically, this child would then slide out through the vaginal canal and during that process be exposed to bacteria in mom's vagina, mom's yep. perineum, potentially yep. mom's stool. Yep. And then breastfed Im immediately, so skin cells, all of these things now would start to interact with the child via the oral pharyngeal space, and then it starts to colonize this intestinal microbiome. Then B. infantis gets in there through, I'm going to let you get to this in a second, but I'm going to sort of give us a little teaser. It gets there via mom, if mom has it, and then the breast milk then is becoming the food source that then feeds these bacteria, the B. infantis, which then feeds us, amazingly again, our enterocytes now are happy, the colonocytes that you called, they're happy, they're now making this nice border in the intestinal lining that prevents the 70% of the immune cells that are sitting right below it from being overactivated and causing these disorders that we talked about in the initial opening paragraph. So historically, that's the beautiful reality that existed. Now we have a world where we don't eat as well, we are hyper-stressed, we're not exercising as much, we have these antecedent risk factors for what we're now calling inflammation. Mom's microbiome may not be perfect because of dietary influences, antibiotics, and all these other things that I know you're gonna get into. 
Then we unfortunately may have dysfunctional pregnancies causing C-sections, which thank God we can do them. But now we know are potentially causing dysfunction of not being exposed to vaginal and stool flora. And now this baby's being born potentially without B. infantis. So segue there now, what, what's the story with, do we have B. infantis anymore? And go to some of the research you guys did regarding was B. infantis found when we looked at the Western population? Yeah, I think you did a really good job of summarizing kind of how we imagine the perfect scenario would be. Um, generationally, mom is able to pass along B. infantis to baby during vaginal delivery through what we call a fecal oral transfer. It's, it's not what we like to think about, but we, those of us who have witnessed childbirth, it's a messy process and moms often will pass stool while they're delivering baby, but this is okay. This is exactly what biology was hoping for uh, because mom's gut microbes then can be transferred to baby. And B. infantis, this is really key. B. infantis is an obligate anaerobe. It has to be in an environment that has low, very low oxygen, meaning it lives in the gut, it lives in the colon, it does not live in the vaginal canal. So we'll get to why that's important in a moment, but so mom has to pass along B. infantis to baby by having baby exposed to some of her uh, gut microbes through a fecal oral transfer. So if you can imagine, a baby born by C-section never gets the opportunity to be exposed to mom's gut microbes or vaginal microbes for that, for that matter. If, if a baby is born with a blank slate and they immediately start taking up the uh, bacteria that they're exposed to that will become the beginning of their microbiome, if you're a baby that's born in a, a hospital operating room, then your first microbes are going to be those that are really good at, at surviving on the countertops and the surfaces of a hospital. It's going to be what's on people's skin who are holding you. It's not going to be the, uh, the, bacteria, the good protective bacteria that are in mom's gut that she was intended to pass along to you. We've seen this play out now where you can see babies that are born um, by C-section versus babies that are born vaginally, they have a very different looking gut microbiome early days and long-term. And the bacteria from the hospital uh, surfaces, um, no matter how great of a job a hospital is doing of keeping things sterile, there are certain pathogenic bacteria that are just really good at sticking around on, on surfaces. These are the pathogenic bacteria that we don't want starting your baby's microbiome. Um, right. So... Um, so if baby is born by vag baby is born vaginally, but mom was born by C-section herself, then she didn't get B infantis from her mom to pass on to baby. Or if mom was treated for group B strep right before she delivers baby, which up to 30% of women test positive for group B strep before they deliver, they're given antibiotics. And that's going to wipe out the majority of good bacteria, including B. infantis that mom may have. So even if everything goes according to plan, baby is born vaginally, mom more than likely wouldn't have B. infantis to pass on to baby now that we've generationally had so many more C-sections, so many more um, uh, and courses of antibiotics. And it's also estimated that women, by the time they're at childbearing um, age, are have undergone about 20 rounds of antibiotics in their lifetime. Right. So if, if you can imagine the likelihood that mom has B. infantis in her gut microbiome and delivers vaginally, 
and is able to breastfeed to feed the microbiome. B. infantis is so rarely found now naturally in the infant gut microbiome. A recent paper that was published by our research group showed that 90% of babies across the U.S. do not have B. infantis naturally in their microbiome anymore because of these reasons. And you guys coined that? We call that newborn gut deficiency. Right. So I used to call that squatter's rights. When I first did my first microbiome lecture back in 2008, I had a slide where it showed who were the first players to get in, took the real estate, and we called those squatters' rights. And essentially, it's the reverse of that. You're, you're, you're essentially stating that your group has defined the absence of the good squatters and the presence of the bad squatters. And these bad squatters I know you're gonna talk about are what's defining our immune dysfunction, right? And so what I'm hearing you say for the listeners, I'm gonna re-paraphrase it again, is that the critical period of time in this general development of infant microbiome function in that first 30 days of life is coming from mom who may or may not have gotten it from her mom. So this is now transgenerational. It is what I call transdysfunctional. So you guys prove the absence of it in 90, 90, nine out of every 10 or 90 out of every 100 tested humans that should have this, they don't have it. So now we know this beautiful bacteria, Bifidobacter infantis, which has all of the genes to break down all of the HMOs that exist, over 200 HMOs, these small little sugar molecules. B. infantis has, is the only one that I know of, you may know differently, but I have not read a paper that says there's another bacteria that has all of the genes capable of breaking down all these sugars. So it is the only one that we know of that can break down all these sugars, right? That's providing all this beautiful immunological, real estate priming, all of this stuff to help our gut not become newborn gut deficiency, what happens afterwards, right? Clearly the, the B. infantis is the newborn gut sufficient player, mm -hmm. but all the effects that you're gonna talk about that occurred afterwards are all based on the inability of mom to transfer to baby, something that is importantly critical to break down a humanly built 15% of an energy produced HMO, right? And I think of that, you were saying earlier, evolutionarily, that is an amazing feat for a human body to waste 15% of the energy source for a baby, not on the baby. That's no small task in a time where food may not have been present all the time. That goes to show how critically important this HMO product is. And I know it's the third most abundant product in breast milk at delivery. Mm -hmm. So, you know, knowing that, now let's talk about the, the, the effect of the HMO actually being metabolized by the bacteria. You said it produces the acids. What is really happening clinically? You know, so at the cytokine level, at the immune level, at the enterocyte level, go there. Yeah, so, so the thinking is that the composition of what bacteria are in our microbiome is, only, is really only half of the equation. The metabolites they're producing, and I'll, and I'll define that a little bit better, but basically the waste products um, that bacteria are producing when they're consuming their food, metabolizing it, and then excreting things like lactate and acetate, those are honestly more important on, uh, than just who is there. And, and we'll talk about exactly why there's a nuance there in a moment. But when a B. infantis, when an active B. infantis that is, has all of the genes, like you said, 
to metabolize the 200 different types of, um, of carbohydrates in human milk, when it is actively metabolizing those HMOs and producing lactate and acetate, it's doing a long list of protective function for the baby. We've talked about the fact that it acidifies the pH in the colon, which then reduces the ability of pathogenic bacteria to thrive. If bacteria that are pathogenic are less abundant, then not only are, do we see clinically a reduction in markers of inflammation in the stool, such as different various cytokines, which are uh, inflammatory markers, uh, calprotectin, which is another um, marker of inflammation clinically, we're seeing the, the pH of the stool itself is actually lower, which is correlated with a reduction in uh, diaper rash. Because what we now know is that depending on the pH of the stool, you either are going to have enzymes in the stool that are, that are really active, that break down all of the protective barrier of that diaper area of the, the skin, or you can deactivate those enzymes. They're called fecal uh, lipases. You can deactivate those fecal lipases by bringing the pH of the stool down and you get a lot less diaper rash. Now, if you're a mom of a term baby and you have a little bit of diaper rash, that's, that's good news, but it's not mind-blowing news. But if you are a preemie, a premature baby in the NICU, diaper rash of the skin of a premature baby actually can be so severe it becomes a wound care issue. And if you, and, and so for babies in the NICU, you want to reduce pathogenic bacteria as much as possible. You want to protect the skin of that baby so that each diaper change, you're not having to do wound care at the same time. And there's a correlation to something called necrotizing enterocolitis, which I believe that you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. Right. And being able to create a protective environment in the newborn gut especially in premature infants and reduce those inflammatory pathogenic bacteria that are abundant in the hospital um, is now shown to be protective against a, a potentially fatal uh, condition called necrotizing enterocolitis. And we have new research coming out that is under review right now showing that we can show a reduction in neck in babies uh, by making sure they have a, an active B. infantis colonized in their intestine um, during those very early days of life. Yeah. And so one of the other things I want to commend you on in your group, you know, probiotic research has been around for a better part of the last two decades. We've known about probiotics for a long time since Eli Mechnikoff first did some work on this. But you guys have done work that I call clinically just it's a beautiful analysis. You looked at cytokines, you looked at calprotectin, like you said, which is a clear marker of intestinal inflammation, which we see go through the roof with inflammatory bowel diseases. You, 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 know, you did the work that allows the rest of us, the clinical docs, to finally believe that the product has relevance. The mechanisms existed, but now you have the, the roadmap to how it's doing what it's supposed to do. You know, we have a huge issue in, in pediatrics. I started in, in Salisbury Pediatrics in, two, in 1999, August. And when we first saw our colicky babies, we were, I was trained at UVA that that was a grain, but grain, phew, well, I can't speak today, brain gut interface issue. Mm -hmm. So it was just a, something was wrong between how the nervous system was working in response to GI irritation. We had no idea what was really going on. Fast forward, 
Now we understand this is in general a milk protein intolerance issue, specifically the casein protein is causing an immune activation issue that causes major problems. Now they're still up for debate, but that's my major hypothesis based on what I understand. So these kids come out born via C-section or, or breastfed, whatever. And within a very short period of time, they start to develop colic, which is this irritability. They start to have these runny green stools frequent they start to have dry skin, what we call xerosis or eczema on, in patches, and they spit up a lot, right? So this to me is the culmination of a dysfunctional tolerance mechanism where the immune system is not seeing the milk as a tolerable you know, nutrient, right? Instead, it's programming it to be intolerable as if it's a, as if it's a parasite, a virus or whatever. And so in my mind, when I'm reading your research, again, we'll prove this over time as you get more and more data. But in my mind, this is the, 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 one of the main reasons behind why we're seeing this aberration in human health right now, where for us, it feels like one in four babies right now has some form of milk intolerance, whether it be to the casein only, but even now 40% of them don't react well to soy protein. A subset of them now we can't even give uh, corn syrup solids, which is what's used in all the powders. So we're going all the way now to something called ready to feed formulas, which is, has sucrose in it, in order to get these kids to tolerate what historically is a normal food. So in my mind, when I think about all the research, the history of the microbiome, delivery, everything, your work is just another piece in this process of where the dysfunction is going wrong. The lack of B. infantis the lack of the metabonome of B. infantis, the not feeding the intestinal microbiome is leading to what I call immune intolerance. Now, again, I think that's still not fully elucidated, but to me, the mechanisms you're stating clearly make unbelievable sense as to why your product, and let's get into now your product specifically, can help newborn babies not go down the road of what we're seeing here is what I call immune dysregulation that was stated earlier in the in the intro. So take it from there. Talk about Avivo. Okay. Talk about everything you guys are specifically doing. Great. Okay. So um, I appreciate you calling out the fact that we are following what I would consider as um, a, a scientific path toward a product. That to me is so important. I feel so strongly that science uh, and biology should direct us toward how to create products for better health versus what most companies do is you have a product and now let's go back and see if we can figure out some science to support it. Um, right. So at Evolve, uh, Evolve is the company that makes Avivo. Evolve, we, we are a spin-out company from UC Davis. Um, from the Foods for Health Institute and the team of founding scientists that started Evolve were, as I mentioned, the ones that um, found that the very specific uh, relationship between human milk oligosaccharides and B. infantis in the infant gut. And when we have now started to go back and say systematically, B. infantis looks like it is missing from the majority of babies in industrialized countries, and we can find it naturally in less developed countries in, in the developing world. In, in countries um, like Bangladesh, like Malawi, like Kenya, places where they don't have such high rates of um, antibiotic use in C-section and formula feeding. And so we can see that B. infantis, uh, when it's naturally passed from mom to baby, naturally colonizes the intestine of the, the newborn gut in, in combination with breast milk, 
or HMOs, um, like I said, preferably from breast milk, and it creates a protective environment. You come back to the US, you come back to Western Europe, you come back to more industrialized uh, areas of Asia, the Infantis is missing. So once we've established that it's missing, and then we start looking at, well, let's look at the difference between babies that have the Infantis colonized in the early uh, months of life and those that don't, that's when a lot of, the, it, it's so clear that biochemically and clinically, those babies look very different um, from very early on and out to up to two years of age that, that we've observed so far. So we have developed a strain of B. infantis called B. infantis EVC001. The brand name is Avivo. And we have now published uh, 15 or more uh, peer-reviewed papers uh, showing what happens when you feed babies this strain of B. infantis Evivo, and how we can colonize the intestine and restore the natural levels of B. infantis as if the baby naturally received it from their mom during birth, and all of the biochemical and clinical benefits that we are now seeing once you do that. Let me pause you there for one second. I just want to touch on one thing. Not only are you published in 15 different journals, but you guys are published in really good journals, right? Cell is no small journal. And, mm -hmm. and to get published in Cell, you have to have really good science. And, and, I, and I'm gonna hammer this home too, because there's way too much garbage out there. Mm -hmm. And when you see good science that has relevance to the patient, now again, it's not, this is not just bench. Mm -hmm. What you're doing is bench to the office where the pediatrician listening to this, the mom listening to this now can say, okay, you guys were published in Cell, and, and I'm speaking for the science, so the mom doesn't have to worry about that. Just know this has been published in a really good journal and other journals that are really good. Okay, sorry, I just needed to say that because I think that's a very important piece of the scientific pie. Thank you. Um, thank you for pointing that out. And the amount of time and effort and investment in getting those studies uh, to the point where it can be published in Cell is probably why you know, this has been a long road for us to get to where we are, and we are so, so incredibly confident and proud in the work that we've done. Evivo is now used as standard of care in hospitals across uh, the country in the NICU for babies, as we mentioned, the premature babies who have an even more uh, urgent and critical need to have a protective uh, um, gut microbiome. And we're also um, now able to say that we are feeding babies across the, the country and outside of the US, Evivo, uh, who are term babies at home. And the, the feedback is absolutely uh, astounding. Um, we did publish a paper recently um, that uh, showed that the overwhelming feedback from consumers using Evivo at home with their term babies are seeing a reduction in diaper rash, a reduction in colic symptoms, a reduction in uh, fussiness, gassiness, and improvement in sleep. And those seem like um, metrics that are not life-threatening, but what we're seeing is that when, when you think of a, uh, a term baby, a baby in its first six months of life, diaper rash, colic, and sleeplessness seem like just a rite of passage. All moms and all dads are just complaining, oh, my baby doesn't sleep, oh, I have diaper rash, I have colic. But what we're now realizing is those are actually metrics or symptoms of newborn gut deficiency that we didn't really recognize in the past because right. they're all related to the inability to di fully digest breast milk. Those HMOs that are, if they are, if B. infantis is not there, 
and HMOs are being unutilized, you know where they end up? They end up in the diaper. And we right. can quantitatively show the stool from diapers of babies with Banfantis versus those who do not have Banfantis. There's a 90% reduction in the excretion of HMOs if baby is colonized with Banfantis. So said in another way, um, there's 90% more HMOs in the diaper of a baby that doesn't have Banfantis. So those, all of those precious nutrients are just going right out into the stool. Right. And so when a parent thinks about this, again, if you have a kid who's constipated, one of the medicines we'll give you is lactulose or a sugar because sugar drags water through the colon. So if you are not able to consume HMOs, this is actually a really nice thing to tell parents. If your baby is having 10 to 12 loose stools a day and you're just breastfeeding, you probably don't have the infantis. That would be my guess based on the literature and the science. So therefore your HMOs aren't being consumed you're pooping them out. And then when you're pooping them out, they're making the stool loose and watery. And I think, again, you're gonna get into this some more, but this is all then immunologically relevant, right? It's not just watery stools, a little bit of fussiness behavior. For me, and you guys are gonna eventually prove this, I hope in some future studies that you're, you have ongoing, but I really wanna see three, five years down the road, are we reducing major disease? So yes. yeah, go ahead. So you're, this is the, the perfect kind of segue to the next um, topic, which is we don't have the data today to say that feeding a vivo to your baby is going to reduce the incidence of asthma, eczema, type 1 diabetes, um, or other um, uh, allergenic or autoimmune disorders. However, all of the basic science we have today that we have published and that we have generated shows that that's exactly what our hypothesis is. We believe that if you can reduce the inflammatory um, uh, profile of an infant early on by suppressing the growth of the of pathogenic bacteria and by ensuring that baby is colonized with B. infantis, utilizing all of those HMOs coming in uh, through the diet and reducing overall inflammation in the gut in that first 100 days of life or three months of life during this critical window of immune programming, our hypothesis is, and the data support, that you are then going to set them up on a trajectory of lower risk of things that are related to um, autoimmune or autoinflammatory uh, disorders. We now have a series, I think there's five going on right now, uh, clinical trials in different parts around the world um, that are have major investments from um, research in organizations and, and companies that are interested in preventing those diseases to see if can we feed Evivo to babies in the first few weeks or the first month of life and actually set them on a trajectory that gives them lower uh, risk of these autoimmune and autoinflammatory uh, disorders later in life, like atopic dermatitis, like type 2 diabetes, uh, type, type 1 diabetes, I'm sorry. And um, I, I am so excited for those data to come out because right now, all of the mechanistic and basic science that, and, and data that we have on these early indications of immune programming show that we are on the right track. Um, and the data will prove that out and only time uh, will allow us to see that. But what we do know is that early indicators, both clinically and at home symptomatically, are showing that babies' um, uh, health is improved by uh, feeding babies a vivo early in life 
And we know that at the very least, they are consuming and utilizing 100% of the nutrients in breast milk versus those babies that don't have the ability to do that. And they are missing out on the benefits of those nutrients in breast milk. Yeah, well said. Um, this is the future again, is understanding how the Infantis is a piece of the major pie. I think it's gonna have an effect. How big the effect depends a lot on, I think, what future dysfunctional choices that human makes. Um, I think diet may be the largest overriding risk factor for all diseases over time, but setting up the system from the beginning for positive events, I think is the most important thing in my mind, because if you look at any prevention strategy, you start at the headwaters of the river. You don't start at the mouth where it meets the ocean. So you guys are the headwaters of the river from the infant. I think mom is truly the headwaters of everything. And that's sort of the reason I started this podcast, because I think everything has to be about mom first and then child second. But you guys also showed that the Infantis was able to stably colonize for a year. That's unheard of, right? I have not seen any data prior to you guys that probiotics in any way, shape or form can colonize their travelers, their friends, they get in there, they hang out, they cause immunologic events, but then they're pooped out. They don't attach, they don't stay, they don't hang out. What is going on in your, your probiotic? Like, is this just, again, this function of dosage timing and food? You know, like here we are, we have bee infantis, we're giving the perfect food because we're breastfeeding. So bee infantis just lives during that entire time you're breastfeeding. And does that make the most sense? Um, so I, I don't know, that's my mechanistic eye argument. Yeah, and I think this goes back to the idea that let biology dictate the direction that we are going because yeah. we did not create something new at Evolve. We took an existing bacterial strain and species um, and put it back into a baby that uh, it was actually a, a B Infantis EVC001 was actually um, uh, found and isolated from the stool of a breastfed baby. So it was not it created in the lab. It's not new. It's not um, uh, something synthetic. It's something that was naturally derived from stool of a breastfed baby who was naturally colonized by B Infantis. And we said, this bacteria seems to be play such a key part in this um, symbiosis between baby, mom, and breast milk. Let's see if we can recolonize a baby that's missing the infantis. And the truly amazing, as you pointed out, an unprecedented result that we saw was if you reintroduce the infantis to a baby and they are consuming breast milk, you can recolonize that baby with B infantis and it will continue to stay colonized until they stop consuming breast milk. And we think of it as kind of three legs of, of, a, of a stool, the right bug, the right food at the right time, you get this amazing stable colonization and it's serving a specific purpose in the infant gut during the time that breast milk is being consumed. What we also saw was, and this was important for us to see as well, when babies stopped consuming breast milk and switched over to more an adult plant-based diet, B infantis levels went back down to a very small kind of low threshold level which makes sense because B. infantis is not good at digesting plant fiber. It's amazing at digesting the carbohydrates in breast milk. So the right time is another really important aspect of getting probiotic 
um, uh, targeted probiotic uh, usage right? Because I think that people like to think that if it works really well in adults, it'll probably work well in kids. Or if it works really well in kids, it'll probably work well in adults. And I just don't think that's true. I think there are specific times in our life, in the life cycle where you consume different types of food and that food is going to determine which bacteria thrive in the gut. And it's very clear now that during the time of breast milk consumption, B. infantis is the right bacteria to be paired with breast milk for the HMO digestion. As you get older, other types of bacteria take over as being the right bacteria for a more plant-based uh, diet. Yep, that's, that's uh, that in a nutshell, I think is human evolution, right? So the timing and the dosage meets the, meets the situation. And so B. infantis setting the framework for human health. I, it reminds me of a lecture, I mean, sorry, a podcast I had with William Parker about biome depletion theory, lack of helminths. But there was some discussion we had around the research that was done by Stein in the New England Journal of Medicine about exposure of Amish and Hutterite children to endotoxin or house dust from animals. And the kids who were exposed to the house dust that had the bacterial byproducts or the whatever's left over the dead bacteria in the dust, they had reduced disease, specifically asthma allergy, right? So we've always had historical exposure to different bacteria and viruses and parasites. The absence, as you've stated very clearly with this newborn gut deficiency, the absence of different microbes, again, you're just picking on one beauty, but I think it's the absence of many different players are causing this whole dysfunction. You guys showed very well in your research, the downregulation of, you know, the inflammatory cell signaling molecules, what we call cytokines. But what was interesting to me was the upregulation of something called dendritic cells. And these are these little hands that sit up on the intestinal lining and taste everything that goes by and says to the immune system, hey, you're good, hey, you're not good, hey, you're good, hey, you're not good. So if in the absence of B. infantis, we're sitting in a situation where those dendritic cells aren't upregulated, may, we may not be tasting appropriately. Mm -hmm. And so we may inadvertently, I think we're inadvertently setting ourselves up for a, a immune dysregulation. And again, pointing out that you guys have done the research showing that your, your B. infantis effect is turning on the exact thing mother nature wants you to have. And, and it doesn't, it, it's not a leap of faith for me. I mean, to put back something that's supposed to be there just makes complete sense. I know there's been some work by Maria uh, Dominguez Bello about, you know, recolonizing children with vaginal flora post-C-section. But for me, the real answer is what you guys are doing. We need stool flora. We, we, you know, the vaginal flora is useful, but it's only 5% of the microbiome, whereas the vast majority of the microbiome comes from the intestines. So we probably really should be doing studies looking at how to get stool bacteria into the C-section baby. Um, so let's pivot. Um, when we think about breastfeeding versus formula, do you guys have any data because I know we've talked mostly about breastfeeding because that's where the HMOs are, but you know, formula companies have now figured out that HMOs are really, really important. So you know, Abbott and Mead Johnson have added 2FL and a couple other, three, I think, of all of the 200 HMOs, they've added three. Uh, 2FL just happens to be the most abundant HMO. So what does B. infantis do for the formula-fed baby, or does it do anything? Yeah, so I would say that if I back up three steps, um, 
you have to feed your baby. Fed is best. And although I now am 100% of a believer based on the science and my experience with my own children that breast milk seems to be the perfect food for baby. If you cannot breastfeed your baby, you have got to feed your baby and formula is the other option. And I think formula companies are working very hard to make formula as close to breast milk as possible. And I applaud the formula uh, companies for thinking about adding HMOs into the, the formula because that truly is another key element that maybe we never thought of before in, in terms of um, uh, the composition of formula. However, you mentioned earlier that there are 200 different types of HMOs found in breast milk. So there, that complexity of the, of the composition of, of HMOs is part of why it works so well to create a protective environment in the gut. Because as we mentioned, B. infantis has, it requires 19 different enzymes to break down all the different bonds that are in those collection of 200 um, uh, types of HMOs. Most bacteria can break down one or two different types of bonds. B. infantis is the only one found that can uh, actually express the enzymes, that has the genes to express the enzymes for all 19 um, of those types of bonds. That means if you are a formula company and you put one or two different HMOs into your product, you aren't prioritizing, you aren't preferentially um, getting uh, B. infantis to outcompete all the other bacteria. Other types of bacteria, including pathogenic bacteria, can, can uh, digest those one or two different uh, HMOs. So the selective, um, the selective growth medium, if you will, of, of um, the HMOs in breast milk isn't replicated in formula today. But I'm, I'm so thankful that we are moving in a direction where formula will continue to add more and more HMOs and B. infantis can digest the HMOs that are in formula. You're just not going to get the same um, colonization of B. infantis and suppression of, of the pathogenic bacteria with formula the way that we see with breast milk. So I, I tend to take the analogy that if you look at a Mediterranean diet, you have a hundred different foods you're going to eat in each food when you consume it as a different outcome inside the system. Yeah. And, and formula, unfortunately, I will take a stronger approach than you. Breast mm -hmm. milk is the best food. There's no debate. There should never be a debate. I agree with you 100%. I'm thankful the formula companies exist. I'm thankful that they keep trying to copy breast milk. Similac made it made its name from similar to lactation. These are necessities, but I draw the line on, you know, formula is an equivalent. It is not. And we should never ever assume it at the patient level. At the bedside level, I tell every mother who delivers, who can breastfeed, this is not an equivalency situation. If you have no choice, I get it, but breast milk is best by far. And I think you've eloquently stated the realities as to the why. It will take probably the next thousand years for us to molecularly figure out all of the different things that exist in breast milk in one moment in time. Breast milk's dynamic. Yes. Human systems are dynamic. If the baby needs X, the child's gonna get X from mom. If the baby needs X, the formula provides Y, you can't get X. Yeah. And we know this, and this is, you know, just like the research looking at maternal microbiomes, they're all disparate based on so many different features and functions, yet we all survive. So there's a reason behind, you know, the dynamic nature of humans. And I think you've, you know, you guys have put the nail on the head that you got to go for where the, where the rubber meets the road. And that's the breast milk fed baby first, but then we'll, 
use it where we have to, but we should still be pushing for the other. You know, the data on breastfeeding as opposed to formula is just replete. It's, it's, you know, everywhere you look, breastfed babies have more bifidobacter and lactobacillus species, formula-fed babies have more clostridium and proteobacter, which tends to be more pro-inflammatory. So, you know, all of these things are leading us down, you know, the pathway towards, unfortunately, more dysfunction if we don't follow what I call historical evolutionary pathways, right? And so, again, I, I applaud you guys for the work you've done because you are following historical evolutionary pathways by looking for what was missing finding the mechanism behind how it's working and replacing and then seeing what happens. Mm -hmm. So I think we've pretty much answered all the questions I wanted to answer specifically about the science for moms to understand. Now I am gonna just be truthfully honest with all the folks. I spoke with you a few years back mm -hmm. and was interested, but didn't buy in yet. And now that you've produced all the science, I'm, in bo I'm on board. I am now going to be an Avivo partner to be giving to folks. And I can say this right now, I'm not being paid anything. I'm not in, this is my love of science and now the product. I think you guys have finally done the legwork to make me believe there's a big difference. So let's talk about now, what does Avivo look like? How does it come? How does mom deal with it? Does it need to be frozen, refrigerated? Can it stay at room temperature? Do the nuts and bolts for mom. Sure. So parents are able to order Evivo without a prescription. They are able to go on either uh, evivo.com. Evivo is spelled E-V-I-V-O. Um, or they can order it off of Amazon. But Evivo is a powder that's in an individual sachet. So think of like a little tiny packet that you tear open and you pour a small amount of powder once a day into a small mixing bowl that, that comes with the, when Avivo is delivered to your home. And you mix that small amount of powder with breast milk or, or water or whatever you're feeding your baby. And it's, a, it's like three to five milliliters, it's very small. And depending on the age of your baby, you can either use a dropper to get this uh, slurry or um, uh, almost like a loose paste into your baby's mouth, into their cheek, uh, or some moms find it easier to use their finger to put it into baby's mouth or to put the, the paste directly on their nipple and, and nurse their baby. And that's how baby ingests Evivo. It remains either in the freezer or in the refrigerator, depending on how many packets you get at once. Freezer, it will last longer. Um, but it's live bacteria. So you want to keep this product cold. Um, and you want, because it's basically hibernating when it's cold. And then if you leave it out at room temperature, it's activated, but you don't want to leave it out for a long period of time. You want to feed it to baby right away. Um, it, so once a day powder, you mix with a small amount of breast milk or water and you feed it to baby. Um, and that is, it comes in either a one month supply or you can get um, a larger supplies at, the, at, at once. And it comes cold shipped to your house uh, overnight. And um, when it arrives, it will be on ice packs because again, this is a, a live bacteria. And I think that's really important uh, to distinguish that when if you were to walk into uh, a Whole Foods or a, or a CVS today and say, I'm interested in purchasing a probiotic, the wall of choices is so overwhelming. And there are so many products and all of them have huge claims on how they benefit you. But think about would a live bacteria last very long uh, it on uh, at room temperature in a bottle? And um, would you want to give that to your baby? I think it's really important to think about 
let's make sure that we're using a live bacteria that actually works when you feed it to your baby so that it actually digests the HMOs when it gets to um, uh, the intestine. And, um, and to make sure whatever you choose, even if you do not choose a vivo, look to the scientific literature to show um, safety efficacy in the infant population that's been in peer reviewed uh, uh, papers because most companies and most products do not do the work to do the clinical research behind, um, behind their product to make sure that it's both safe and efficacious for your baby. Yeah, and I can agree with you 100% that it is uh, a wild, wild west out there still with lots of products for uh, every different health condition known to man and probiotics are no different. Um, but you guys have done the work, so you deserve the credit for doing the work. And I'm very grateful you've done the work. And again, I'm going to keep this stuff on ice at my office. So moms who are listening to this, who are associated with Salisbury Peds locally, you're welcome to come and get it. Because I think this is going to be more news to use for moms and dads to make better decisions for the best outcome of the kid. Because again, headwaters disease, we need to start where it matters. And this is, I think, where it really matters. So on that note, Tracy, let's go to question number last, right? So I love asking this question. I think it says a lot about where we need to go as a society. If you have a golden ticket that you can turn in to the federal government, to the president du jour, which happens to be Biden right now, you know, what would you ask for? You get one ask and yeah. what, what would make all the difference in the world? And I told you mine was school food. Everybody knows that that's my passion. I wish we could change it. So you can't choose that one. What else do you get? So my request would be every single baby born today in the U.S. and at labor and delivery, when they start nursing with, with mom to get that first colostrum, to have one dose of a really high quality B. infantis, because if we can get B. infantis, even one feeding of B. infantis into every baby uh, when they're born, I think we could absolutely radically change the health uh, trajectory of babies in our population for a lifetime. So standard care and labor and delivery, one feeding of B. infantis, that would be my, Love my it. ask, my goal. Getting some squatters' rights effects in, in place, that would make me very happy. Well, Tracy Shafazada, I love saying your last name. It is a beauty. I appreciate your time. I appreciate Dr. Mazes putting us together those years ago. Yeah. And um, you guys, thank your colleagues for me and, and for my patience. I am grateful for what you guys have done and what we are going to hopefully be able to do in the future for the better health of kids. I will be watching my patients very carefully, interestingly enough. So I'll be your anecdotal story of what's happening at the bedside because this will be rolling out in the, in the next, uh, next weeks. And so I'm, I'm excited. So thank you so much for your time. And I hope you have a fabulous day there on the West Coast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I know you're as excited as I was after hearing all of that information. It is a real pleasure to start to understand that we can make change in humans by altering things upstream way before disease starts and then look at the outcomes and, and really feel like we're making a difference in people's lives. And I think today's podcast sort of goes to that, that place that I'm always trying to get to, the headwaters of disease and can we modify and make people's lives better by differential choices early on, whether it's nutrition, probiotics, uh, exercise, chemical avoidance, whatever it is. 
these are the places that I want to keep going. And I think Dr. Shafazada did an excellent job laying out the framework for why we need to consider adding this probiotic to our armamentarium of health when we have newborn babies uh, right after birth and, and for the first few months of life and maybe longer as the research starts to, to show us. So I'm gonna take a little deeper dive now with some of the literature, especially that cell paper. So for those who are interested in that little bit of more technical stuff, stick with it. For those who are not, um, you're welcome to uh, sign off at this time, but as always, I appreciate your time. So when we start to think about breastfed babies versus bottle-fed babies, or what we call formula-fed infants, we start to notice that the literature is showing clearly that formula-fed infants exhibit decreased biodiversity or bacterial richness, you know, obviously different species, there's less of them. And this occurs even after the first year of life, all the way up until two years of age when the consumption of foodstuffs becomes the more important driver of how our microbiomes turn out in our intestines. There is you know, clear knowledge that decreased biodiversity in the human gut is associated with poor health overall and over time. We know that breastfed infants are populated with higher proportions of bifidobacter and lactobacillus species, whereas formula-fed infants tend to be popular with more uh, abundance of clostridial and proteobacteria species. And these differentials do have human health outcome differences, right? So, you know, in, in the study, um, clinical research articles with Henrik et al. in 2019, they noted that fecal calprotectin, which is a marker of intestinal inflammation, that concentration of fecal calprotectin negatively correlated with the amount of bifidobacter noted within the human intestine. And, and clearly pro-inflammatory cytokines correlated with the volume of clostridial species as well as entero, enterobacter species, yet negatively correlated with bifidobacter abundance. So the more bifidobacter you had in your intestines, the less inflammatory markers you had in your gut. These are good signs of health. Pro-inflammatory cytokines were significantly lower in the EVCO01-fed infants, which is this Avivo product, in days 40 and 60 postnatally compared to baseline and compared to controls as well. When we think about what feeds this microbiome, we learned over the past decade plus that human milk oligosaccharides, as discussed in this podcast, are the third most abundant component of breast milk after lactose, which is the milk sugar, and lipids, otherwise known as fats. The amount and composition of these human milk oligosaccharides varies among women and also during the lactation period. Generally, the total human milk oligosaccharide concentration is higher during the early stages of lactation and decreases within the first few months of life. The, the amount of the HMOs in the breast milk after a full-term delivery is significantly higher than those of children who may have been born prematurely. The human milk oligosaccharide amount or uh, fractional component uh, is, as we stated, the third most. So clearly it has major, major implications in human health. It can't be there as a, a, as a mistake. So we are now learning that HMOs are critical, right? And the big question is what happens if you don't have them? And now in our case, we're learning that what happens if you don't have the bugs that eat them? And these are all really interesting things to ponder. Um, and, in the pro and in the podcast, we did get into this, right? So it's very clear. 
In an article by Heger et al., spelled H-E-G-A-R, 2019, um, we, we noted that the major HMO types, there's three of them. 35 to 50% of the HMOs in the breast milk are fucosylated HMOs. 12% to roughly 15% are sialylated HMOs. And then the other remaining 40% plus are non-fucosylated neutral HMOs. We know that these HMOs affect the health and they can also serve as a decoy receptor for opportunistic pathogens at the mucosal surface of the gut. And these are really critical things. So this fighting in human defense against pathogens, pathogen overgrowth, and potentially infections. From the cell paper, we see Dr. Henrik and his team's work, and they are noting that this Bifidobacter longum subspecies infantis, otherwise known as what we call B. infantis, is one such strain that is adapted to metabolizing these human milk oligosaccharides. It contains all of the major enzymes involved in breaking down the more than 200 different milk sugars inside mother's breast milk. Bifidobacter infantis is commonly found in breastfed infants in countries where incidence of immune-mediated disorders is low, such as Bangladesh and Malawi, but rarely found in Europe. Introducing B. infantis has been successfully accomplished in strains such as that with evolved biosystems uh, probiotic, which then is noted to be stably and persistently colonizing the intestines and maybe re even remodeling the intestinal microbiome of breastfed infants, leading to, as noted earlier, this reduced sign of intestinal inflammation known as a fecal calprotectin. We also note that in the research, the innate immune response, an initial innate immune response specifically, illustrated what was illustrated by an expansion of circulating monocytes, a specific type of white blood cell that peaked four to seven days after birth, as well as had a transient surge in circulating gamma interferon at day zero through three, as well as elevated levels of circulating interleukin uh, 1RA, a natural inhibitor of pro-inflammatory IL-1 beta. Likely, all of this has a dampening effect on the initial innate immune response to microbial exposures during the first weeks of birth. Following the initial monocyte expansion, we observed a, excuse me, in the article, they stated they observed a gradual increase in the frequency of memory regulatory T cells. Now, these T cells are very important in dampening overreaction of the immune response and trying to set up a child for tolerance to things that are non-pathogenic, i.e. food. And this occurs in the first few weeks of life. They also noted in the study that they, they found previously unrecognized contraction or reduction in um, plasmacytoid dendritic cells in the beginning, but then a, a, a significant expansion of those same plasmacytoid dendritic cells after birth, likely indicating that they're now going to be tasting and checking out more bacteria and species of microbes in the gut, as well as potentially food, to learn tolerance from um, uh, intolerant pathogens. They also noted in their research that the children that had the uh, bifidobacteria had a higher frequency of non-classical monocytes, often considered anti-inflammatory white blood cells, as well as antigen-experienced or protein-experienced regulatory T cells. This, again, is very important in understanding the immune-suppressive effect of overreaction to otherwise normal foodstuffs and different proteins that enter the gut. 
They noted in particular that memory T regulatory cells were inversely correlated with activated CD8 positive T cells and pro-inflammatory monocytes in children that had abundant levels of this bifidobacteria. This relationship was disrupted in infants lacking the microbes specifically that we're talking about. The authors concluded that the infants not only uh, were colonized by the bifidobacter, but in cases where these microbes failed to expand during the first months of life, there is evidence of systemic and intestinal inflammation, increased frequencies of these so-called inflammatory activated immune cells, and reduced levels of the regulatory cells that are indicative of systemic immune dysregulation or a lack of tolerance. And that's the piece I want to really talk about critically. Tolerance is the mechanism by which the immune system stops overreacting to things in the environment that are otherwise normal. It is apparent by this research that bacteria are involved in this process of priming the system to be normal or abnormal. And in this case, we have specific cellular data, high quality cellular data in a high quality journal that this bacteria, while it consumes these uh, human milk oligosaccharides, produce metabolites and other products within the gut that then train the gut and our immune system to provide an anti-inflammatory and tolerance-based way of existence. And this is critical in my mind from all the research I've done and talking to different experts over the years and in following Dr. Agard's work and upcoming uh, discussions with um, uh, specialists in nutrition as well as, as breastfeeding, we really are getting to a point where we have to go back to what God nature intended. You know, however you want to spin this thing, we need to go back to the way it was meant to be. So now if we start to put these two experts together, Dr. Agard initially, and now Dr. Shafazada's group and their work, we're starting to see a picture where mom is producing a specific set of milk sugars called human milk oligosaccharides, depending on what she eats, depending on her lifestyle, that then is going to feed baby, assuming baby has the correct microbes and correct setup to then therefore develop a natural system. This whole chorus of events or this symphony of, you know, microbe symbiosis with humans through mom and baby is being disrupted by our lifestyle choices, whether it's poor diet, whether it is C-section, whether there's antibiotic exposure, whether there's a myriad potential reasons, we are driving a system of immune dysregulation, immune overreaction, immune intolerance, and effectively immune disease development. So now, after looking deeply at this set of research, pieces of information and and sort of philosophy around what to do, I'm coming to the conclusion that this is a place where we need to start spending some time and money to try and change the outcome of children by looking at everything from the 30,000 foot view in, initially, but then going deep, deep, deep into the science and say, okay, you know what? It's time. It's time that we get the immune gut brain access interface set up prime from the beginning through helping mom understand what's the best way to be uh, anti-natal, um, what is the, the best system for her through food, stress reduction, and all the things we've talked about in the past, what to do at birth, what to provide to baby uh, via probiotics or breast milk or food as the child starts to grow. We're going to keep going down this pathway and, and try and, again, build this set of pictures, this web of understanding so that we can all come out of this 
more knowledgeable as to what's the best outcome? What's the best answer? What do we really need to be doing as a society to help encourage and support and love mothers in the position they're in and help them really gain access to high quality outcomes? You know, I, I really struggle with the reality that many mothers don't have access to good nourishing food and not even these probiotics. And I'd love to see a day where we really, really put our national and state funds and, and, and desires behind products like this instead of behind heavy drugs dealing with disease down the road. So I know this was a long one, but it was an important one. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And as always, I'm going to leave you with the statement that I hope you hug your kids tonight. And with that, have a great day. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute development of a provider-patient relationship.